Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek coming to you with uh, one of our lawyers in our office, Shant Karnicki, and say hello to everybody, Shant. Hello, everyone. Civil Action comes to you on a weekly basis where we try to summarize in 20 to 30 minutes uh, some of the most important cases that have come down affecting the plaintiff's practice in the last few weeks. Uh, This week, Shant, what are we going to be covering? We got some very interesting cases, all pretty good cases for the plaintiff's bar. Uh, first, we're going to cover a notice prejudice case, one of the very important principles in insurance law. It's a very good case, and uh, we'll go in depth into that. Then we're going to cover a removal case, removal of federal court and some um, you know, bad trend over there. Then we're going to talk about a good privacy rights case that just came down against Facebook. Um, that has to do with the standing and uh, injury issues that we've talked about previously in, in, that, uh, in the Spokio case. Then we're going to talk about the Driver Privacy Protection Act, the statute that I didn't know about, but some very interesting questions about uh, statutory interpretation there. Then we're going to talk about uh, arbitration of a, of a UCL claim and how you can't arbitrate a UCL claim. And last, we're going to talk about a type of immunity, uh, governmental immunity, that I also didn't know about called trail immunity. So this is uh, new information for Shant Day, uh, but a lot of interesting cases. Yeah, I think this is some good cases. Shant, tell everybody where they can find us first. Uh, they could find us online at kbklawyers.com and on all social media platforms at Cavatech LLP. Uh, check us out online. We occasionally put on seminars too, free MCLE seminars where we cover some interesting stuff just kind of as a way of kind of giving back and connecting with lawyers and discussing issues that we're interested in and educating people. So yeah, check they us out. You can find out about, that, uh, about those seminars on our website as well. Yep. So let's just jump in here. The first case we're going to cover today is Fitzer College versus Indian Harbor Insurance Company. I've done insurance cases, insurance bad faith for 30 years, and I've never heard of Indian Harbor Insurance Company, so I learned that. This is a case that came down from the California Supreme Court. Before we got started this morning, I had to explain to Shunt once again that the California Supreme Court is not the court in Washington, D.C. It's a completely different... I've seen it. I've seen it. I actually went there in eighth grade on a field trip. Yeah, the Supreme Court. No, that's in Washington, D.C. Wait, our state has their own? Yeah. Well, Well, all kidding aside, yeah, this is from the California Supreme Court, and the question here ended up in front of the California Supreme Court because the Ninth Circuit... Circuit Court of Appeal said this seems to be a question for the California Supreme Court to decide because it has to do with a fundamental, well, what is now declared a fundamental doctrine. Well, one of the California one law. of the other cases we're going to deal with today is removal. This case found its way in the um, the the district court here in the Central District of California in front of Judge Wu. It crawled its way up to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit looked at it and said, "Hey, there are some fairly significant questions here, and there is a procedure by which." The Ninth Circuit can certify a case to the Supreme Court of the state from which the case came from. They certified it uh, to the California Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court issues its ruling and then sends it back to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, So what we're dealing with here factually very quickly is that one of the Claremont colleges, which are located in Claremont, very good, uh, called Fitzer College, was working. Pitzer, Pitzer, Fitzer with a P. Okay, and they isn't the H silent. There's no H. It just it just bits her. So they're in 2011. They're they're working on a new dormitory, and they find darkened soils at the construction site, which indicates that there has to be remediation. They start the remediation very quickly. Uh, they work on it very quickly. It costs them a couple million dollars, and they don't give notice to their insurance company until after the work is well underway and or completed. I think maybe like three months later or something. Yeah, it wasn't ridiculously late. It certainly was within the statute of limitations in which to bring a claim, but it was late according to the notice requirement in the insurance policies, which says you have to not only give us notice, 
but we have to consent to any that's work right that's so be. there's a notice provision that says um, you have to furnish a written report as soon as practicable and then there's a consent provision that says before incurring any cost to remediate whatever the condition is because it's an environmental policy we have to give you consent um, so those are kind of like the two provisions here that create an issue um, but then there's another provision in insurance agreement that, that kind of gives rise to this dispute uh, that's before the court, which is the choice of law provision that says that all uh, matters arising under the policy have to be adjudicated uh, under New York law. Right. So one of the important principles that comes out of this case is determining whether or not notice under an insurance policy is um, – if there can be a choice of law provision that controls that in the insurance policy or whether California law will always prevail for California claims for California residents, California citizens, California companies. And the uh, principle or doctrine, doctrine that gives rise to the possibility that California law should prevail here or the question of whether or not California law should govern this dispute is the notice prejudice rule. So, And, and that's something I've kind of learned from Brian. I've learned how important that is. So, uh, Brian, what is the notice prejudice rule? Well, it's actually um, not just notice prejudice. It's really notice substantial prejudice. And the reason is that California has certain conditions or most policies have certain conditions uh, that are subsequent to the making of a claim, things you have to do, forms you have to fill out. Frankly, these are hoops that you have to jump through. And with one notable exception, that being an examination under oath, uh, all of them are really subject to the substantial prejudice rule, which means the insurance company has to establish that not only it's prejudiced by the insurance failure to comply with a particular condition of the policy, but it was substantially prejudiced. And uh, as far as I know, there has never been a California state case finding an insurance company could deny a claim on the basis of being substantially prejudiced. There are district court cases in the federal federal courts, but not in California state courts. And what would make this uh, question something that would deem the uh, New York choice of law provision invalid and subject to, to Cal- subject to California law? Right. Well, we look to whether or not it is a fundamental public policy of the state – and um, what the California Supreme Court held here is, although it ne- it came out and it said we have never referred to California's notice prejudice rule as a fundamental rule, we are calling it the public policy of the state favoring compensation. So I think you could take away from it is it is strong public policy, fundamental public policy, fundamental being the critical issue. And uh, a policy such as the notice prejudice rule may be considered fundamental because its connection to concerns of fundamental fairness in the negotiating process. That's what the court said. That's a great holding. So the first thing the court did was they said that New York law doesn't apply. California law applies. And I, I think that's the big takeaway from this case, that this case ultimately memorializes or enshrines the principle that the notice prejudice rule, which Brian's right, should be called the notice substantial prejudice rule, is fundamental policy in California. The notice prejudice rule protects insureds against inequitable results that are generated by insurers' superior bargaining power. That's what the court says. That's why this California Supreme Court that we have now is dead on. And I will point this out also, Sean. This was a unanimous decision. So you had a justice such as Chin, who's typically conservative, going along with this decision. Uh, And I I think I can't say enough good things about this. This is definitely a pro-consumer, pro-policy holder. It is limited to first-party insurance. What's first-party insurance? When someone's making a claim against their own insurance carrier. Yeah, and I've done a lot of uh, first-party bad faith cases, first-party insurance cases in 30 years. And this is a great decision. It really helps a lot because 
in my opinion, insurance companies are always looking for that little trap, that little thing to catch you on. You know how I'm always trying to come by your office and catch you sleeping. Well, in that vein, the court specifically said the notice requirement in an insurance policy serves to protect insurers from prejudice, not to shield them from their contractual obligations to a technical escape hatch. So that's that's one of the great lines from this case, and and that's really what this is about. It's we're not this rule about like giving notice to insurance companies to protect them from substantial prejudice, for for protect them from effectively being really screwed over by really late notice. It's not to give them a technical escape hatch, like you didn't tell us within thirty days, bye bye, we're not going to. Cover your claim. The court also makes it clear this doesn't apply to third-party insurance. Right. This applies to first-party insurance where it comes up all the time. I'm not sure of how it would particularly come up in third-party cases, uh, but that's beyond the scope of this case. I'm thinking that that's the only purpose, the only purpose that they're saying here. So great case. Um, if you love insurance, it's, a, it's actually a short case to read too, right? It's a short case to read. It's an easy read. It's a good primer for this notice prejudice rule. So if you're doing first-party claims at all, even if you're just handling the claim part of it, important case to read. Pitzer College versus Indian Harbor Insurance. Let's move on to our next case. That's Ehrman versus Cox Communication. Uh, This involves internet service, residential internet service, presumably through Cox, through cable provider. Uh, And this involves the principle of removal. Right. Removal under the, the removal here was done under the Class Action Fairness Act. Typically, you can remove if you have complete diversity. Which, which just for the record, is, not, is neither fair. It's, it's not fair. Right. It, it is not, a, it does nothing to make class actions fair. Um, typically, you can remove a case if there's complete diversity, which means both sides of the V are from different states. Everyone on both sides of the V are from different states. Um, but also under the Class Action Fairness Act, you can remove with minimal diversity um, and when you have 100 class members or more and the amount in controversy exceeds $5 million. So here, Cox removed the case, argued that um, there's minimal diversity because everyone on the plaintiff side is from California and Cox is in Delaware and um, the plaintiffs are all uh, residents of California. And uh, pl- the plaintiff here tried to remand it back to state court. And the way you do that is you argue that there is no diversity or the amount, one of those elements aren't met. Over here, the argument the plaintiff made uh, was that Cox has failed to establish that everyone on the plaintiff's side is from California. Yeah, what, what the plaintiff argues is that all, the only thing that the defendant did in this case was merely allege residency. They made a very short uh, straightforward statement about residency and that um, there were people here who were from California that had exceeded $5 million. And what I really don't like about this case is that it it makes it very clear that the party removing only has to make a facial showing that it falls under either actual diversity under the federal rules or under uh, CAFA. CAFA. And, and I think I agree. I think that's unbalanced because over here they said the plaintiff, uh, the plaintiff's attempt to remand was only a facial challenge to the defendant's removal and not a factual challenge, meaning the plaintiff didn't go out of his way to show facts that indicate that no, not all the plaintiffs are from uh, California and, and the facial challenge wasn't enough. I, I, I think it was an inevitable outcome, but I don't like that it solidified allegations, allegations of right. parties residency on its face uh, establishes the burden of the party removing and then becomes and then completely shifts the burden to us, the plaintiffs or the party trying to remand the case, which means send it back 
to establish that um, there are uh, there, there aren't sufficient grounds. And uh, they even put a little footnote in the, in the opinion that says, the district court acknowledged that it would be inconceivable that neither the named plaintiff, the class representative, nor any of the 832,000 purported class members uh, are uh, citizens of California. So, I mean, it was fairly clear where this was going, but I don't like the decision. Yeah. Let's go on to the next case, Patel versus a little company based in Northern California called Facebook. A struggling company. Sean, you probably never heard of based in Northern California. It's a startup um, who's, who is a champion of privacy rights and, nope. and the people's nope. rights. No, different company. No, no okay. I think you're thinking of a completely okay. different company. Facebook. Did you know that Facebook, Facebook has a over 1 billion active users? That's that, I, I actually heard that recently, and that's crazy. That's like a large part of the world's population. Did you know that I was on Facebook when it was called The Facebook back in 2006 or 7 when I first started college? Is that right? Did yeah. you have you are you still on it? Uh, no, I am I am no longer on it and in fact I do find it very intrusive and this case is exactly about one of the features of it that I find intrusive. It's called the facial recognition capability of Facebook because Facebook apparently has now the ability to tag or recognize and started suggest- in 2010 actually I didn't know that but it started in 2010 the ability to tag and recognize people and um identify whether there's people in photographs you can identify the people in photographs yeah right? automatically without this isn't just you saying this is Brian's face that's Sean's face once you which would say, be frightening in and of itself right right well yeah there's a reason we're doing we're yeah. on we're on this podcast right because we do not have faces for TV and no one wants us on TV anyway. Um, but this is a case brought under an Illinois statute called the Biometric Information Privacy Act. How about it- this little tidbit from the case, Sean, that uh, Facebook's face templates are stored on its servers, which are located in nine data centers maintained by Facebook, six of which are in the United States. All six are in different states. Does that scare wow. you? Wow. They're like they're probably actually. I was watching something yesterday about how these big tech companies buy out old missile silos in the middle of the country because they're safe places to to store their data. That's where I'm moving next. You're going to move into a missile silo, an I abandoned am. missile silo. I am. That's so. Good. That's this good. case particularly applies to an Illinois statute, which makes any kind of biometric um, data or biometric identifiers. Um, a, a violative, unless I guess there's specific permission given, right? And, and it's pretty clear about what counts as a biometric identifier. The statute defines a biometric identifier as a scan of hand or face geometry. So this falls within that. Clearly, we know that. There's no so real dispute about the that. plaintiffs in the suit. In this case, sue under Illinois law. They're bringing it on behalf, I suppose, of Illinois residents in California under the Ninth Circuit. This is a Ninth Circuit decision, obviously. And they bring it on the basis of this law, and Facebook's argument is based on Article Three standing. Right. They argue that there is no injury. It might violate the statute, but there is no injury. And we've, I, I believe we've covered this case, and we've talked about it when we're covering other cases. Spokio. There's a case called Spokio versus Robbins that, that really raise, uh, lays out – um, the standards for a injury, and there's a uh, there's a I believe a two step approach to analyzing whether or not there's an injury. Right, the two step approach is whether the statutory provisions at issue establish a protection of the plaintiffs, and whether the specific procedural violations in this case cause actual harm or presents a material risk of harm. And that's the two step approach. I will say that Spokio, despite the fact that it came from um, this Supreme Court, which has not been anywhere near consumer friendly is actually not all in all a horrible case. 
No, this this case actually I think is a is a really good case. No, but I mean Spokio is not a bad case. Spokio is not this a bad case. case that we're talking about right now. This Facebook case uh, or the Facebook case is not a bad case at all. It's a very good case. So the first thing they do is they look at this two step approach to determine whether or not there is a uh, particular statute. Um, that is established to protect concrete violations or a concrete interest. And the court concludes that common law rights of privacy are absolutely intertwined with constitutionally protected zones of privacy. I love that. I think that's really good. The court concludes that invasion of individuals' biometric privacy rights has a close relationship um, to the harm and to uh, actual privacy rights going all the way back to English and American courts. I love that. I think that's really good to come out of a decision. Um, and then they look at the second question, which is whether the specific procedural violations um, actually harm but present a material risk of harm. And and they conclude pretty unequivocally that, yeah, th- this is a violation and this does harm the uh, the class of plaintiffs here. Um, and they and they clarify that the harm and the privacy interests that are being violated here um, is exactly the type of privacy interests that the the Illinois statute here sought to protect. So it's not that someone was harmed in the sense that they incurred a cost or they were hurt or they were they were offended in some way. It's that their privacy rights were violated. And it kind of goes goes out of its way to lay out the uh, framework for how violation of privacy rights is an actual concrete harm in and of itself to have your privacy violated by having your face tracked is a, uh, a harm in and of itself. So, so so what happened in the district court in this case is they had actually granted class certification of this issue. And so the next part of the case is Facebook challenging the certification of the class and said it never should have been certified. And once again, a defendant says there has to have many trials to determine whether or not people were actually had their privacy violated. Was it was an actual violation of each individual's privacy. This is a standard trick that the defense uses to try to um, uh, focus on uh, the inability of a class action to work by saying there have to be many trials. And the court rejects that as well and says, no, this argument is rejected. Uh, The whether or not the violation occurred doesn't depend on each person's subjective reaction to that or their subjective experience. It's just that the privacy right violation occurred by tracking their face, by, by, by storing that data, by taking that data, the, the violation of that statute and the, and the privacy right violation. The final thing that Facebook argues is the other argument we see in a lot of these privacy cases, which is it's going to be too much money. I mean, that's basically what they argue. This is too much. Uh, there's too much in the way of penalties. There's going to have to be too much in the way of statutory damages. Or there needs to be a cap and that, that, that uh, class search should be denied by that. And um, they say that there's nothing in the legislative history indicating that a large statutory damage award would be contrary to the intent of the General Assembly. And I think, you know, what you're seeing here is a lot of people have kind of had it with Facebooks of the world. They're kind of yeah. upped in, in, to their eyeballs in having their privacy violated. I think privacy violation is an issue that cuts across party lines, cuts across sort of ideology – um, nobody likes to see their privacy being violated. Yeah, unfortunately. I think it's it's a sort of bipartisan issue, and you have a lot of, um, if you look at the amicus briefs that were filed, you have a lot of um, interesting organizations that kind of come together to the ACLU, then the Privacy Information Center. You know, th- there's a lot of groups that support. The, obviously, the Chamber of Commerce was on the other side of this. Um, right, because- they don't think anyone should have any privacy at all. 
that the whole privacy issue takes us to our next case, which is Andrews versus Sirius XM Radio. Tell us about your exp- – first of all, do what? you think we're eligible for an XM Radio channel? I think so. I think our own channel, not just a show on some other channel, right. our own channel, the Brian and Shant channel on Sirius XM. Right. People listen. Right. I don't think the FCC would allow that. No, the FCC doesn't regulate Sirius XM satellite radio. That's right. Oh, because it's in space. It comes, yes. It, it comes from, from satellites. Space. Sure, from yeah, space. Yeah. So NASA. So we have a chance is what you're saying. Right. I we think, have a chance. That's I good. think we'd like to hear from you if you'd yeah, like give there us your to be feedback. a Brian and Shant yeah. station. Yeah, we're going to start a petition to get on Sirius XM. If you'd like to subscribe, let us know. No, this is a great case because um, let's set up the facts here. You buy or lease a new car and apparently even a used car, and it comes with Sirius XM radio for six months. It runs out. Even if you don't sign up or extend it or do anything to contact SiriusXM, SiriusXM starts inundating you with mail, emails, and even phone calls saying, hey, you want, your trial is ending. Do you want to sign up? Please sign up. Please sign up. And, and they keep bugging the crap out of you. Until um, you sign up. Until you sign up. I mean, what, what's the solution here, Brian? When you're sign ready? up. Sign up. I, I sign guess, up. I guess that's one solution. Thank you, Brian. You're a real advocate for the consumer. But really what happens here is that the dealer, whether it's new or used, um, effectively gives your information in exchange for this six-month free trial run to Sirius. So now they have your personal information. They presumably, in this case, got it from the driver's license. And the plaintiff in this case alleged that it was a violation of the DPPA, which stands for the Driver's Privacy Protection Act of 1994. And what's the history of the DPPA, Brian? So it's a really this, inter- this case kind of highlights that. Yeah, it's a really interesting history in, in this case because there was an, a, a young actress in Los Angeles uh, many years ago named Rebecca Schaefer who had been on a sitcom, and some crazed fan went to the DMV in California, got her information, found out where she lived, and killed her. And as a result of that, um, we started as far back as, you know, almost 30 years ago now talking, really talking about this kind of privacy issue. Because up until then, people could go to the DMV and fill out a request form and get people's personal information. Um, So this federal act comes down and says that that the DMV can't just give away your information and that people can't use that and that there would be a $2,500 violation for getting – for each violation of that – uh, if the information had been, ta- been obtained directly from the DMV. The problem in this case was? The records here that were obtained does not count as a motor vehicle record. So just to clarify, under the DPPA, um, you have to satisfy two prongs. One, you have to show that the defendant, SiriusXM here, knowingly obtained uh, the plaintiff's or class members' personal information. Which I is think, true. Which is true. Which they is they true. knowingly obtained it. They knew it's him and they obtained it. But second, from a motor vehicle record, and oh, there's a third prong for non-permissible use. So the third one is met, uh, but the the real question here, that the real issue that this case is hinged upon, is from a motor motor vehicle record. And as Brian said, it is taken from their driver's license, but is that from a motor vehicle record? Uh, and the court ultimately says, and there's a paragraph on page twelve of the opinion that says. Uh, the driver's license is a record, but it does not necessarily mean that is it is a motor vehicle record since it's not coming from the DMV. Right. It's in the possession of the individual, and the individual turned it over. And uh, the court goes on to say that they're sympathetic to the concern. I'm sympathetic to the concern, but the court goes on to say that that's not what the Congress ever intended in enacting this law and that it would be unreasonable, for example, to penalize a security guard for getting somebody's driver's license to go into a high-risk, high-security building. So unfortunately, they turned this case down, 
But I really think, you know, it's just one more example of how we are all getting mined for our personal data all the time, and that data is money, and that data is being sold. We've had cases where uh, we sued various um, p- various entities which mine, farm, uh, uh, get, go out and get as much information about you as possible because, let's face it, what corporate America wants is to sell you shit. Yeah. And the way they're going to sell you shit is by finding out as much information about you because they're clearly going to sell different things to Shant than they're going to sell to me. And the more they know about Shant, the more they can focus. Yeah, and, and your information is probably the most valuable commodity right now. It's more important than any type of natural resource, and, and, and it's important that we have statutes and, and case law that kind of protects us in, in that sense. All right, our next case is Lacayo versus Catalina Restaurant Groups. I will say that this is a um, fourth district court of appeal case, and it involves the restaurants Caro's and Coco's and Coco's Bakery, and maybe a restaurant called Catalina. I'm not familiar with that, but I'm fairly certain that Shant has been a customer at every single one of these. In the last month. After In or the last before month. midnight. Usually after midnight. Okay. No, no one you know, goes to these places before midnight voluntarily. All right. So this case involved, once again, uh, a motion to compel arbitration. Yes. And the claims here were labor and employment claims uh, brought as a class action. And, but also – On behalf were, of assistant managers who were – who I guess arguably were misclassified as managers, managers being exempt, assistant managers sometimes being non-exempt, meaning the labor code applies to them. So the claims were brought under the labor code. And there was also an injunctive relief claim brought under California's unfair competition law, the UCL. And defendant here filed a motion to compel arbitration. No, no dispute that there was a uh, arbitration agreement yep. in in the employment agreement, um, which the employees were obligated to arbitrate any dispute that they had. But there was an exception, right? There was an exception, and the uh, opinion kind of highlights this. And it's there was a section in the arbitration agreement called "Claims Not Covered by the Agreement." And it consisted of the following language. Claims that employees may have for workers' compensation, unemployment compensation benefits, or claims deemed not subject to arbitration under law are not covered by this agreement. So – and the argument here is that the UCL claim is not subject to arbitration under law because we know it's not. Um, So the trial court – Granted the motion to compel arbitration as to the individual claims. Also, uh, the trial court said that the issue of whether it was a class, whether there was a class action waiver, which means you can only pursue individual claims, you can't pursue a class action in arbitration, that that was left to the arbitrator, right? To dis- yeah, the court refused to dismiss it, left it to the arbitrator, and then denied the motion as to the UCL claims and stayed the matter in the trial court until the arbitration was completed. Now, it's interesting because the California, the United States Supreme Court, not Sean to be confused with the California Supreme Court, got it. in a case um, just this last term called Lamps Plus ruled that, um, that arbitration agreements, if they're silent on class-wide arbitration, there can be no class-wide arbitration. And I have to say, I think that's one of the stupidest decisions to come out of the um, United States Supreme Court in a long line of stupid decisions involving yeah. this. 
So if this one-sided kind of uh, collusive, uh, not collusive, but coercive agreement well, doesn't writes, is, uh, allow you to have the right to do it, then you can't. If it's silent, then that's – Who writes the arbitration agreement? The Certainly employer, not the employee. The, employer, the employees employer don't go, please, one-sided. can I have an arbitration agreement, please? Yeah. And so they write it. They're the masters of the document, and they put nothing in there about whether there's a class action waiver or not. And the Supreme Court says, we're going to imply – that there is a It waiver. comes out in their favor. Now, so the, unless they go out of their way to protect your right to uh, class, uh, uh, bringing it as a Which class, is going to happen how often? Uh, never. Right. Ever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Never. And so then, um, but, but here the Court of Appeal in California says, well, because there was a argument about, there was a clause in there about the arbitrator having the right to decide, we're going to leave that to the arbitrator. So... Catalina restaurants didn't like that. That's one of the issues they were appealing. Right. And uh, so, so they tried to appeal that, and there's a question of whether or not they have the right to appeal that. And the court said they do not have the right to appeal that. And then uh, Catalina restaurants says, pretty pleased will you treat this as a writ? And the court said, no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to the last issue in the case, which is the merits. And that's because the court didn't stay, the Superior Court didn't stay the UCL claim, right? That's right. They didn't stay the UCL claim, and and uh, the Superior Court said that we can't dismiss the UCL claim, nor can we nor can we subject it to arbitration. So I guess that's the upside of this agreement. That's the good news here that it protects the UCL from arbitration. But ultimately, the, the I, I believe the case got stayed. So it's not like the uh, UCL claim got to proceed in the trial court. Is that right? Did they, did they actually stay the whole case? I think they did. I think they did stay the whole case and let everything proceed until the arbitration is done, including the UCL aspect of it, but the good news is they couldn't compel the UCL to arbitration. Well, one one tactic that a lawyer might do in that case, then, is to dismiss the individual claims and just pursue the UCL claims or pursue a PAGA claim. That's right. And then that does away with the arbitration, which, you know, ain't going to be good for a plaintiff anyways. Hey, but but the good news, something I wanted to note is that there's currently um, AB51 that at the time that we're recording this is awaiting Governor Newsom's signature. And that is a statute championed by CAOC, by the way, sponsored by CAOC, um, that would – in. in employment agreements and employment relationships wouldn't allow an employer to refuse to hire someone because of the fact that they won't sign an arbitration agreement. So this is something that the courts have not been treating favorably for, for the plaintiffs, but at least from a legislative angle, we're trying to bring about change here. So if you're interested in talking about this, we'd, leave, we'd love to hear from you. I'm sure CAOC would love to hear from you and get your support on this. Okay, so Sean, let's go to our very last case today. This is Lee versus Department of Parks and Recreations, not the television show. Uh, and this show. involves an interesting um, uh, aspect of California law, and this is one of the things we hope to do in these podcasts, which is to draw um, a spotlight on some things that you may not recognize in your everyday practice, but these cases may come to the door. And one of the things that we've talked about in prior podcasts is the fact that governmental entities, the only way you can sue them is because a statute allows you to sue them. And the government code will allow you to sue governmental entities on various grounds, but then there's exceptions, and one of the exceptions is something called trail immunity under government code section 831.4. Kind of weird. Yeah, it's trail immunity, and the statute says that a public entity is not liable for an injury caused by a condition of 
A, any unpaved road which provides access to fishing, hunting, camping, hiking, riding, water sports, recreation, or scenic areas. Or B, and this is the big one, any trail used for the above purposes. So anything that can be construed as a trail or part of a trail, you, you can't – no matter what the condition is, you get injured, too bad, so sad, you can't sue the government. Right, but you can also understand what the logic of this is, which is to encourage public entities to give um, public access to their property – uh, so it is kind of a double-edged sword. I understand that you know some very significant injuries and significant cases have been dismissed under this. Um, this is one of them. So before you go any further, I'd like to point out the first sentence of the opinion starts with, Plaintiff Michelle Lee injured herself on a stairway in the bootjack campground. Uh, injured herself. That kind of gives not, you a clue injured. into where yeah, this you, is going. You know right? where this is going to go. She injured injured herself. It's already her fault. So, so this is a this is some kind of a stairway um, that's uh, built in, in in a path in a trail. Uh, it's made from crude natural materials. It closely resembles a trail. The plaintiff brought a, a ADA complaint saying that it's not ADA compliant. And the court looked at this, and this whole trail immunity has been an expanding area where it's sort of like if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. So they've looked at everything they can to try to scoop into trail immunity. Yeah, and they went out of their way. They said this isn't a staircase that's connecting two floors in a building. It's flatter, longer, winding rather than straight. But maybe that leaves open the possibility that if it was kind of a concrete stairway that was that was straight, that wasn't winding. You know, if you get a set of facts that are the opposite of the facts in this case. Um, in terms of the description of the stairs, you might be able to. Uh, make well, I an think argument. that's what the plaintiff was arguing here: yeah. is that it wasn't really part of a trail. But the court said it is a trail; it fulfills the purpose of the immunity statute. Uh, denying immunity would uh, put the burden on the, the Department of Parks and Recreations for this particular entity, and they didn't like that, so they found um, that it was trail immunity. But then the interesting part about the case is that there is a section under CCP section um, 1038, Mm -hmm. which allows in certain civil proceedings under California Tort Claims Act, which means governmental entities being sued, it allows the governmental entity to turn around and say the case wasn't brought in good faith, and because it wasn't brought in good faith, you have to pay our fees and costs. Something, it's it's a higher standard, or rather I should say, it's, I guess, a lower standard than like 120.7 or or a, a motion for attorney's fees uh, for malicious prosecution. It sort of like just says the trial court can look at this and make. Yeah, it if you had no reasonable cause for bringing it, if you knew that there's no real controversy based on the facts and the law, then then you have to pay fees. And the trial court here granted the uh, motion for fees, uh, but then the court of appeals said no because. There was no case law that explicitly said whether or not a stairway is a trail. In fact, we took this question up and we looked at it, and then ultimately they say that it was predictable but by no means certain that a court would determine that the bootjack stairway is a trail or at least part of a trail. So you know, they, they kind right. of point they out said, that it has to be pretty damn clear, and over here it wasn't. I mean that's the whole reason they, they took said, up this case. They said, look, the trend in immunity law, which I, I'm at least glad that they admit that, the trend in trail immunity law – is towards broadening the immunity, but it was no by no certainty that the court would determine it, so the case wasn't brought in good faith. So at least, I know it's sort of the booby prize, but at least the plaintiff in this case 
didn't have to pay the forty or fifty thousand dollars in fees. That's the consolation. So if you ever sue a government entity and, and and you get screwed and you lose and they try to move for fees, hey, look, look for this case, uh, Lee versus Department of Parks and Recs, and you might help have some helpful argument there. So that's all we have today, right, Sean? Long episode, thirty five yeah. minutes almost. Yeah. We uh, get into these cases, we get going. We just love the law. We live for the law, and hopefully we don't bore you to death. Hopefully you find this valuable. But seriously, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear if you have any questions. If you want to be a part of any of these discussions if you support our our move to have a serious xm um brian and sean channel right we're going to set up the petition and we'll send out an email blast about where you can support we're totally kidding about this please don't go and we're kidding report somewhere that we're going to you know brian and sean are trying to start a serious xm channel or show please um so yeah we'd love to hear your feedback kbklawyers.com check us out uh go on there check out some of the seminars we have coming up we do one every month we'd love to have you there we'd love to hear back from you whether it's complaints about brian or compliments about nope. my, nope. my, my there are no analyses. complaints about brian there oh no there's plenty of complaints about brian all right well thank you very much and uh, thanks for tuning in and see you next week